Reusing and restoring historic places requires many skill sets, and for historic theaters and music venues, a major component in that process is making the space sound just right. It's no easy task, and for today's guest, Professor Ian Hoffman, it's a job that's taken him across the globe and all around the United States. Listen closely. We're talking historic acoustics on this week's PreserveCast. From Preservation Maryland Studios in the historic podcast district of Baltimore, this is PreserveCast. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. Today, we're joined in studio by Ian Hoffman, who is an architect, acoustician, and faculty member in acoustics at the Peabody Institute of Johns Hopkins University. His career is focused on understanding the curious interactions of sound and space in both the built and urban environments. Over 25 years, Ian has made significant contributions to the design, renovation, adaptation, and restoration of buildings for music, theater performance, and assembly in North America and abroad. His teaching spans many aspects of the oral domain, including the conversation among sound, tectonics, and form, as well as phenomenology in human spatial understanding, specific courses including architectural acoustic design and analysis, acoustic measurement, acoustic modeling, noise control, and psychoacoustics. Boy, do we have our work cut out for us today here on PreserveCast just to define all these things. But I'm really excited to talk about this interesting component of the reuse of historic space with Professor Hoffman. Thank you so much for joining us today, Ian. Thank you for having me, Nick. So let's get to know you a little bit first before we dive into some of these weighty issues and and the definitions thereof. Um, How did you get into this? How does one become an acoustician? Uh, One becomes an acoustician from a variety of angles. Uh, I personally became uh, involved in it through uh, a childhood strength in music and science and math and not sure what I wanted to do, uh, not sure that I wanted to give up one for the other uh, and ended up studying music and uh, mechanical engineering with a focus on acoustics and vibration. And then after working in the field for a bit, uh, went back to graduate school and studied architecture. And so my version of an acoustician lives kind of in the middle of the Venn diagram of music, engineering and architecture you will. And I guess that's kind of getting it. And maybe take a step back. Where did you grow up? Where are you from? Uh, lots of places. Originally Southern California, uh, upstate New York, near okay. Rochester uh, uh-huh. during my growing up years, and then high school outside of Chicago. So a number of different places. Um, but to add to your question, people become an acoustician, at least when I was doing that a number of years ago, um, it was tricky. You had to find your way into it. Now there are Uh, programs out there where you can actually specifically study acoustics at the graduate level where I participate um, or other places where you can study it specifically at the undergraduate level. So it is becoming a a field of its own, although it has been approached from physics and engineering at times, architecture and building science at times, music and music technology at times, um, even uh, more uh, historical perspectives, writing and history at times, things of that nature. And to put a finer point on it, you are, uh, in, in addition to an acoustician, also an architect. I am. I am a, a licensed architect and practice uh, freelance at the moment. Uh, okay. In addition to my teaching, which is my primary focus, I've formerly, uh, I guess I should say, I was 
my path, uh, which is in the middle of that Venn diagram, was uh, acoustics consultant or design consultant for buildings for the arts, um, back to graduate school in architecture, practiced architecture, uh, was a professor of architecture, and now a professor of acoustics. So the hand gesture I'm giving is a spiral. I keep going in circles around <laughs> the Venn diagram, right? And so, um, yes, so I'm a variety of things, but my, my professional... A credential would be a licensed architect, although my educational background includes engineering and music. So for people who have no background in this whatsoever, um, but perhaps have been to a historic space where sound is an important component of their experience there, thinking like a theater or a music venue, something like that, what does the study of acoustics bring to a space like that? Like what exactly... In, in a class, for example, are you teaching? What what kind of work are people doing um, that the general public would be surprised or or perhaps would understand um, in terms of how acoustics impact the place and, and what you can actually do with acoustics? Well, that's a huge question. I should start, Understood. By, <laughs> start by saying I'm not... Uh, uh, I'm very happy to be uh, challenged by being here in this podcast, but uh, I don't specifically practice uh, preservation acoustics, right. although I'm a part of working in uh, preserved spaces or historic, uh, both historic preservation and historic adaptation of spaces at times. Mm -hmm. And that's maybe an interesting nuance we could talk about. I would add to not just acoustics in historic spaces like theaters, but that's my focus. But I think they apply to monuments or um, just all kinds of spaces for assembly. The the uninteresting answer is the way acoustics works with historic spaces and materials and form is physically exactly the same way it does with contemporary spaces and materials right. and form. And so the question is, how does the layer of of the historic value or the historic um, oh every, everything from actual physics and materials to what you all I'm sure deal with, which is a more nostalgic idea of of memory or before, how do we how do we deal with that? So I don't really teach specifically a lot of preservation acoustics. I deal with trying to understand how we can reach the client and the goals of that project in a very sensitive way because there isn't, believe it or not, there isn't a singular A good acoustics. There is actually an acoustics approach or a good solution for very specific users or very specific spaces. And so I I think I've deviated from your question, which was how do you... What kind of work do acousticians do? So you're going into a space, maybe give an example of a project or, or how you might impact a space and the kind of work yeah. that you're teaching so your students. that's a different question. So what, yeah. do, what kind of work do acousticians do? There's a lot of different things we do, I guess, using verbs. Maybe I won't use only verbs, but uh, it begins with observation. It begins with listening carefully to what's going on and trying to connect um, both visually and viscerally what's going on. I think people respond to sound space because we occupy the space that the sound is in. It affects our body. It connects to us through our ears, but we're in the space with the sound, whereas um, our eyes kind of project to the perimeter of the space very quickly, and that's the visual that we see. What do we do? We observe and listen very carefully. We uh, compare both drawings and images and experiences in other like spaces, even though there may not be something exactly like the space that we're in, to try and, if you will, calibrate what we think we're hearing in, in one space for what we think 
we could be able to hear in the space if we made some changes. We certainly spend a lot of time calculating. We look at distance, we look at material and shape. In historic spaces, there's a lot of concern over uh, the very specific shapes or articulations or ornaments of the space in, in a theater, for instance. But then there's also the whole discussion of even the cleaning of it and the changing of it or the historic painting of it or the recovery of it and how these kinds of material changes will impact reflection or absorption or the type of reflection or absorption that you may get off of it. And so how do we study that? Well, those things are studied. We can study reflection and absorption. We can study the size of the space. We can study the shape of the room. We can compare it with drawings or actual experiences to other rooms that are similar. We can do a number of calculations. And I I love acoustics because it is both technical and intuitive. Right. And it's not just technical. And we can study the technical aspects of all the different components of it. The psychoacoustics component of how do we want the sound uh, in time or in direction to arrive at the human to have a to have what was an aesthetic, beautiful acoustic experience for that purpose. It might be orchestra, it might be speech, it might be historic theater, it might just be talking. So all of these observations and and these calculations then come together in the form of actual, I guess, action in terms of there are things that are done in the space. Like, give us an example of that. So so it's a composition. I might understand each of those individually, but how much of this diffusion do I need or how much of this sort of adjustment do I need here or there? And uh, it's an imperfect science. I I would say that those of us that study it, an acoustician is someone that both studies and analyzes, and in my cases, designs using these kinds of uh, tools. The acoustician typically is a, if you will, a third party, but an integral third party in a building project. My experience is specifically in building projects. Um, that is working with the architect and the client and the other specialists and uh, officially providing recommendations and advice. A couple of examples, um, a couple of historic theaters that I worked on that that were very much about bringing them back to what they were before they fell to both both disrepair but also adaptation and neither is local. Um, One would be the Coronado Theater in Rockford, Illinois, and then the Balboa Theater in San Diego. But in both cases, they wanted to bring the spaces back to a kind of early 20th century grandeur. One was to make, uh, in Coronado, make it equipped uh, for uh, the local orchestra that played there, which was not actually the initial use of the space and required some thoughts and some changes to materials or even adding absorption or a panel on a wall that was flush with a wall, not something that changes shape. Uh, some of those discussions were contentious. <clears throat> um, in, the, in the case of the Balboa, it was the case of h- how do we create what was a vaudeville theater and turn it into more of a contemporary cinema. So someone wants to come into an oldie timey space and have a very contemporary oral visual technical experience. Closer to home, a little closer to home, the Hannah Theater in um, Cleveland's Playhouse Square is one that we adapted from a 1,400-seat single-balcony vaudeville theater to a 550-seat. Yeah, we cut the seat count into a third, but to a 550-seat space for the Great Lakes Theater Company, the Shakespeare Company there. And in theater terms, revising it from more of a show house, roadhouse, to a local repertory Shakespeare space and discussions of how to kind of shrink the use space within a larger historic Mm -hmm. jacket was a fine conversation. It's actually one of the projects I'm quite proud of how we were able to 
to make those changes. And the approach there was the historic jacket was precious. There were some elements and items that were inserted that, you know, in, in air quotes, could be removed if needed. You know, they were they were built elements, but maybe it was a lighting uh, mount, or maybe it was we actually brought the the bar lobby space, which was too small. We brought that into the under balcony space of the old vaudeville theater, and things that were that could be removed, and the historic uh, skin of the building was still there on display. But we've changed the right. sort of interior, uh, the very finest interior space that the humans connected to. That's an example. Uh, very close to home, a project I spent a number of years on because it was long in fundraising and um, bridged 9-11 in Washington, D.C., where arts funding fell away, is the renovation of the arena stage in Washington, D.C. And the discussion there is the original arena-shaped Harry Weiss building from the 60s. Um, we, we added and expanded to that project, adding a theater, adding support space, but how do we preserve a very particular uh, very specifically shaped, almost spacecraft-like um, theater space that ha- that was historically protected, as well as wanting to preserve it. And how do we expand preserving that? The approach there that I was a part of, not necessarily the only or the lead voice, was to wrap the building in sort of the glass the glass uh, wrapper and and almost uh, make it precious inside the box. And that did a couple things actually acoustically was to help mitigate Reagan Airport noise from. infiltrating the space, but it also kind of set apart the historic volume within a greater glass box. So there's a a different kind of approach of preservation. Um, A lot of really great examples. I mean, just fantastic work and really kind of shows that connection between the auditory and the, and the historic experience and the the give and take on that. So there's a lot of competing interests in these projects and a lot of a lot of consultation and back and forth. And, and maybe that's a good segue to talk about, um, do we know, because you're talking about it's a 21st century oral experience. We want so, contemporary sound, right, we even want, though we want this nostalgic place. Right, right? We want big booming bass and everything around us. Or sound from all directions, but I right. don't want to see or change anything to accommodate a loudspeaker. And these, these, I'm, I'm being yeah. cheeky intentionally, but these are great challenges. So I think right. really strong, com- a presumption of preservation, and I, again, I'm not a preservationist, but it, the the stakeholders, shall we say, or the design stakeholders for sure, of really understanding what the bounds of preservation are is really important on a project because it's not a singularity either when we start talking about the oral domain, for instance, or the lighting domain or the historic domain, even the visual domain. How many times have I worked on a theater that was from 1917 but that had a uh, a dramatic and beautiful Art Deco renovation in the 1930s and right. then it fell into a house of ill repute in the 1970s. And then it had a 1990s renovation that put all this postmodern stuff on it. And now we want to preserve it, but to what date right. and to how, but we don't want to, those beautiful art deco fixtures are amazing. But if we're going to take it to 1917, we're actually taking those out. And it, right. these kinds of questions are really tricky. So how does sound fit into that? But back to that point about the modern sound experience, do we know historically what these places sounded like? Is there any study or work being done on that? We don't know what they sound like historically exactly, but to some degree we do. Uh, we use computer models to understand uh, a removal of the geometries that may have been added during a uh, later renovation. Uh, to some degree, the building being uh, fairly static, we understand from what the building has to say, what it wants to say, and we can see that this element or this bump or this panel or this slight reshaping of the balcony was in response to something problematic that may still be present in the theater, and the bump or the change or the panel 
is uh, a partial attempt at changing that, but to some degree, the original sound in part, not exactly in total, but in part, the original sound is still there and present to, to speak to because of the relationship between the sort of gross geometry and, and the space. But I mean, the honest answer is we don't know exactly what it sounded like at that time. Um, but there's different layers. There's the, the listener isn't the same. The listener isn't the same. The listener of today with their um, smartphone and their earbuds and their spatial sound and their, honestly, with their noisy urban environment they're coming out of isn't the same listener that sat there maybe when that historic theater was right. originally authored. And, so and I don't know if this is true, but I have, all, I have read that in you know, the 19th century and 18th century, people heard better in the sense that because we, we have so much urban noise and so much just background noise all the time, that supposedly, and I don't know if this is true or not, that we could we could hear more and we could hear things farther away because there was less sort of background white noise happening. Well, I don't know if it was here more or less. I think it was certainly here differently. I think yeah. it was a different hearing context. Absolutely. I am concerned about urban noise and the, the industrialized world and how much noisier the world is than 150 years ago, yeah. pre-industrialization. And, and we what, purposefully bombard ourselves with noise too. What we accept, what we do to overcome a noise environment is often to add more noise. Right. Um, and so how we listen and what our expectations are absolutely are different as a result of the very noisy world we live in. That To that extent, and also as a part of that, you know, you've heard, I've heard this, this idea that, you know, because energy can't be destroyed and because sound is energy, that means all the sound that's ever been created, I guess, is out there. Is there a way or is there, could we potentially capture that? Can we listen to the Gettysburg Address because it's actually still floating out there? It's still propagating somewhere in the ether, yes. Yeah. Uh, at some level, it probably is still propagating in the ether. And I think as our science gets more and more uh, precise and refined in all areas, we may be able to capture some of those things that are way distant in time. But um I actually don't want to focus there. I mentioned the world oral legacy because I think when I think about preservation, I think what do we want? What is the um, what is the importance of the soundscape to a preservation, not just a project, but to to history? And, mm -hmm. and there's many layers of it. There's oral legacy on an actual project. What does a theater, or a place, or a space sound like? There's um, this concept of noise in cities. Uh, what are we doing? We we, we want to preserve Maryland and we want to deal with, we probably do that at some level, one building or one place at a time. But uh, we're also um, making a Maryland and uh, the rest of North America and the world that is also quite noisy. And when we think about humans not just experiencing inside buildings, but humans experiencing a Baltimore or a streetscape, um, we're creating a tradition of oral fatigue and hearing loss and distraction and also very high quality audio that people can appreciate and respond to. And what I'm not sure I have a, an answer to that, but oral legacy is kind of how comparing what we were listening to 100 or 150 years ago or in ancient Greece to, to what we listen to now. And, and that oral legacy in a preservation context, I think has to somehow, I'm not an expert per se, but it has to go back to oral tradition, both the O-R-A-L and the A-U-R-A-L, which I think go together, the oral coming out of one's mouth and arriving at one's ears, those two go together prior to widespread literacy, prior to printing press 500-ish years ago, prior to um, the distribution of libraries, which this city had a great legacy as a part of the distribution of library materials. 
the way we learned and communicated and had any kind of history or knowledge was through the spaces that we heard and the spaces we heard in and through me talking to you as we are today. And that is a really important legacy that has a much longer life than maybe the precious visual legacy of the historic theater and what we want to bring it back to 100 years ago. And the fact that that the thousands of years of oral legacy that we have is a, is a history of people and how we communicate both through the arts and beauty, but also for information exchange is, is part of oral legacy too. And so I asked the question myself is what are we leaving behind now? I, I'm less an expert on, on studying what it was 100 or 150 years ago, although there are some that do that. And I'm more a, an advocate of what is the oral legacy that we're leaving now for people 100 to 150 years from now. And is that's, it good or bad? I think it's both. I mean, I'm very concerned about the noisy city. I'm very concerned about um, the damage to our physiology, not just our hearing like, oh, isn't it sad we can't hear as well as we used to, but restaurant communication and streetscapes and um, heart rates and the things that kind of are sleep right. sleep uh, disturbance and healing in hospitals with the noises that go on there and right. all the things that, that are oral experience. We, we take it a lot for granted. I'm not saying there aren't actually people thinking about this. I want to segue, though, to the other part of your question, which is about the energy and where, where it goes. And I don't know if we can capture those signals. And I, I, there is certainly a poetic idea of going back to a place. I think sound is temporal, meaning it comes and it goes, and you're arguing maybe it's never actually gone. Uh, but going back to a place and time where a, an event took place, I love the fact that you have to be at a concert or at a speech but a, a particular audience at a particular place and time for a particular performance on that particular night with its with its disturbances or its open doors or maybe someone drops a bow or something like that. The, the temporality of that particular place mm -hmm. and space is amazing and beautiful in the oral acoustic listening experience. And people still respond to that, right? Even with all of the recording and all of the high fidelity and everything that we have, there's still something about going to, I mean, if that, were, if, if that weren't the case, people still wouldn't throng to go see the aforementioned Hamilton in the theater, right? You have to go see. There's something to that yep, still. It, it's a community shared listening experience where we gasp together or we respond or giggle together. And, and that is... I, I appreciate that there was a place and time where that happened, not just, it's not so normalized through through recording or even kind of artificially recreated through 100, 250 years later, trying to recreate it nostalgically. That that place, that time, that event occurred. Your question of how can we, can we respect or capture or appreciate that it occurred in that place and time, how do we even, whether it's memorialize or appreciate that it happened in a place, those are wonderful, tricky questions that go well beyond sort of my technical acoustics and building understanding to a much more sociological, historical place. But to answer your question about energy is I take a slightly different angle on it. I don't, I don't know that I can capture those signals. I totally appreciate that that event happened in a place and we should acknowledge that. The question of what happens to sound as it goes off into the ether is I have a, this isn't so much preservation, but it it triggered, uh, your question triggered this for me and that I have a, a secret belief and I don't know how to quantify it. I've been thinking about it casually for a number of years is that the primary way that sound, the signal that I speak to you, the noises that are made by industrialization and cars and alarms and events that we want to hear, the primary way that it's absorbed is through uh, the mechanism is porous absorption where actually sound is converted to heat. Uh, very tiny amounts of heat when sound is captured in soft goods like 
fiberglass or clothing or carpet or uh, even the air, is it possible that some total of all of that noise that we've put into the world over the last 100 to 150 years could be contributing to thermal change in the environment? Hmm. And one would say, oh, it's tiny and insignificant, taken any morsel. And it is. It's tiny, tiny amounts of wattage of sound energy. But we're generating a lot of sound. But take 150 years ago to 1,500 years ago and think about just the existence and how we were as a people and how large, we, how many people there were and what the size of cities were. And then we look at these people that are, and I'm, this is not a political argument about climate change, but there are people that are studying minutiae in temperature change. The primary way that sound is absorbed is through porous absorption, which is the transduction or the change of sound energy into heat, tiny amounts of heat. But how much of that over how many years, over how many really noisy cities? Mm. Now, this is not some sort of conspiracy suggestion. <laughs> it's something I wonder about. I think a lot about sound. I think, of course, I'm a, I'm a person living in contemporary America, and I'm thinking about the pressures on what we're, we're dealing with. And so I... Your question goes two ways. One of them is, it could it cost possibly be causing negative impacts? I think it causes negative impacts on the individual over time. Could it be causing negative impacts on the climate over time? But then the other side of me is kind of your side of it is, we also talk in the world a lot about sustainability. And is there a way maybe that uh, the Gettysburg Address is still out there? And could is it sustaining as an energy wave somewhere? Right. And could we actually go back and dial it back in time or, or take that propagation back and capture it and somehow recreate it. So is there a, is there some sort of weird uh, metaphor for both sustainability of oral experience and, and resistance to climate change? Well, if you is figure it, out either of those, let's have you back. Yeah. I didn't mean to go <laughs> off the topic, but those are the no. kind of more ephemeral thoughts that I have on the subject. I like it. Um, I, I have some questions for you. I don't know if that's okay, but uh, one of them. It's never been done, but I like it. I mean, when I thought about this, I, I mean, the different verbs that come down here, and I've worked on a number of buildings that are historical. I'm not an expert enough to understand exactly historical preservation, restore, adapt, renovate. These are all um, words and things that I've participated on, and I think different clients, I see this through the client's sort of lead, uh, they take a more eager um, tone towards some of those words, and I don't think they all mean exactly the same thing. I'm an advocate for buildings, uh, place in time and history. And I think I take preservation as not always meaning a nostalgic return to a 1917 theater per se, but, but is what is the highest, particularly looking around Baltimore, I'm relatively new to Baltimore. What is the highest and best use of the building infrastructure we have now? How can we make, how can we preserve by maybe adapting the use? Is there a connection between are, are we preserving the use of a building? Are we preserving the building superstructure itself? Are we preserving the historical sort of community identity of that building? Are we preserving um, the memory of what that building was? And I yeah. even I even look at the building we're in right now. Right, old mill. This is an old mill, not right. being used as an old mill. No. And so would a preservationist look at this and say, we've preserved the legacy of the old mill district of Baltimore and we're making use of it and we're we're finding the richness of that heritage of Baltimore, but we didn't make it a mill. So where's right. use connect with superstructure preservation? And I think, when you talk about sound, yeah. when you talk about sound, that's why when I'm saying sometimes we preserve a theater for a historical purpose, but the oral experience is a very different kind of experience. And those right. are interesting conversations. Yeah, I think that, I, well, I mean, preservation has changed quite a bit in the past 50 years, 50 to 100 years for that matter. 
I think that probably the the dyed-in-the-wool, ardent preservationist, pure preservationist of 75 years ago um, would be horrified at the idea of taking a historic building and, and giving it some new purpose, taking the Center Theater on North Avenue and turning it into... Uh, entrepreneurial space and recording studios and a, a video game, you know, there's a, but at the but, same time so, you're preserving the life of that place yeah, for, for I a, think, intersecting with a contemporary well, set of needs. Yeah. So. And that's what I was going to say is that I think that, you know, if you were to talk to our staff here or the vast majority of preservationists of 2018, the idea is how to utilize historic spaces that have authenticity that have a sense of place that cannot be recreated, that have value for a variety of different reasons. How can you utilize those spaces to make communities better and to make uh, a place for um, new ideas and, and new uses to prosper? Um, so I think that that's kind of how we approach it. I mean, really what you're getting at is the difference between rehabilitation um, taking the best of a space like what we're in now and giving it a new purpose versus a restoration where you're trying to take it back to a specific period. Restoration happens a whole lot less nowadays um, than it did previously. This has been a fantastic conversation. Um, before we go, uh, the question we ask everyone who comes to the studio, your favorite historic place or site? Uh, that's a great question. And my original reaction to that is what is a historic place? And, um, is a place that was fashioned or created or designed yesterday historic already if events and things are happening there or does it have to be a certain age to be historic and um, and I think my answer is a mix as a as an architect as a as a one who loves concert halls and and the world and travels the world to listen to these kinds of things um, and as a student of history I, I think probably the place in the broadest sense that I, I most moved historically is the city of Berlin. And I think that has to do with my age, growing up in a Cold War environment and seeing the transition of that city from a divided city to a totally transformed city. Some of those elements are uh, new and contemporary and not very preservation-like. Some of them are very much nostalgia, hold on to what was. Some of them are find new life and respect history, but the mixture of the, the murdered Jews memorial, if you've been and to stand there in what is a 10-year-old kind of monument, a memorial, and to have a very historic experience, and then to walk along the embedded line in the, in the pavers of the wall, and then to experience the Berlin Philharmonie, one of my favorite concert halls of the world, which is 1963, mid-century modern, uh, but tremendously historic, even though not that old, mm -hmm. in that it represented this symbol of true innovation right adjacent to where the divided wall, divided city wall once resided. And just experiencing and imagining um, the impact of, I mean, too poetic, but human ideology dividing a place in a city that I grew up watching movies and hearing stories of Cold War and difference and separation. And then as an architect, seeing the transformation of a place in a city in a way that I think is very respectful. I, I should include in the mix what they've done to reestablish the Reichstag building, the Bundestag building with the, the, very, the glass dome and the glass facade on that to connect the idea of government being transparent for the people of Berlin and just the layers of what goes on there. And, and maybe this is too too easy because it's a it's a capital city of, of a major a major country um, but history and being confronted by what has happened here the idea of temporality what may have happened here sonically sound or the place where there may have been an assembly of national socialist events happening or the place where 
you know, the center of where maybe uh, the horrible history of the Holocaust may have occurred. And then the divided city for so long in my youth is, is I can't help but be connected to history. And I see it in the built form of what was, and I see it in the way that we've responded in the built form, looking forward to the generations that will respond in the future. And I see it even in the DNA of the city fabric from the way the train lines connect to the bridges across the river to, to the, the fabric in the landscape of the city. Well, I think that perhaps is maybe one of the most eloquent examples of a favorite historic place. I love it. Um, and I, perhaps one of our first from overseas as well. So um, this has been a, a pleasure and a really great opportunity to dive into something that I think impacts every historic place that people love, but perhaps is a, a component that people don't think about. So thank you so much for joining us today. And thanks for um, being here with us on PreserveCast. Well, thank you, Nick. And thank you, Preservation Maryland and PreserveCast. It's absolutely uh, challenged me to think about uh, my oral uh, sort of love and preservation. And I, I feel like I've only barely adequately answered your questions, but I appreciate it thinking about it very much. Thanks. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's show, notes, and all previous episodes, visit PreserveCast.org. You can also find us online at Facebook and Twitter at PreserveCast. This program was supported by the Historic Preservation Education Foundation. PreserveCast is produced by Preservation Maryland in Baltimore City. Thanks again for your support, and remember to keep preserving.